0: Thank you sister it's good to be back with all of you again this evening uh, what a glorious day hasn't it been uh, well, I was sitting out back on our deck this afternoon and working on um, revising the, the PowerPoint that we're going to show this evening and uh, there were two loving doves you know those turtle doves that were that wake you up in the morning they, they, they sound so nice as they coo but not at 5:30 in the morning And uh, we had two of them out back there, and they weren't cooing. They were just sitting there, so serene, so beautiful, on a little hill next to us out back there. And I I just couldn't help but praise God for uh, creating all of this. And it didn't come together by chance, did it? No. God's hand is on everything we see, from the the most minutia of creation to the great experiences of creation. So we're so uh, thrilled uh, for that. Um, tonight, we're going to continue some of the thought from this morning. I, I hope that what we had to share this morning with regard to the church on the move and the biblical justification for that premise really hit home with you. That it is God's desire for his church to be on the move. And remember this morning, we really emphasized the meaning of church. Not necessarily just this idea of a building, but rather you, me us and we, the larger, invisible church of Jesus Christ in the world. And that we are to be on the move because our God is on the move in seeking out His people and bringing them to Himself through the means of the church being His witness. We're not going to get into Romans chapter 8 or 9 and 10, but there's a whole message that lies within those three chapters of God ordaining and sovereignly setting aside his people from eternity past to already the finished product of glorification. But also that when we get to Romans 9 and 10, you really see God's means for all that to come about. And it's the means of the church that Jesus Christ uses to build the church uh, through you and I moving out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to say this, we don't have to move out too far, because the world is really on our doorstep, and the unchurched in America, that body of individuals and people group in America is massive. We're going to look tonight, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to a passage we glanced on this morning in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this, 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 this passage that... Uh, is focused on uh, uh, focused on uh, uh, the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. Before we do that, though, and I have to look back here every once in a while because I didn't bring my computer to be a monitor for me. But before we do that, as a kind of a prelude and setting the tone for tonight, I want to I want to show you uh, some statements made by Tim Keller regarding our present culture, and that's going to kind of set the mood for the rest of this evening. Number one, Keller says that the opportunity for extensive culture making in the U.S. is one of those issues that we're facing today. In an interview, sociologist Peter Berger observed that in the U.S., evangelicals are shifting from being largely a blue-collar constituency to becoming a college education population. And we can see that because everybody is encouraged to go to college when they come out of high school or further their education. And and we are switching from that blue-collar mentality into a college-educated population. And what Berger is really saying here is, what's going to happen, and young people listen to this, what's going to happen when this educated culture, especially Christian-educated culture, moves out into their professional scenarios, into their professional jobs? Or, and he gives out he gives three different scenarios for that. I can remember a couple of them. I don't know if I'll remember all three. But Berger says, what are they going to do with their profession? Are they going to go into that profession and blend with the profession? Are they going to go into that profession and lose contact with their understanding of Christian culture? Or are they going to go into that profession and are they going to challenge that culture there with their Christian testimony? And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, hypothesis to consider and the considerations of it. Secondly, Keller says the rise of Islam. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I was interesting. I was searching some things out today and that uh, Islam has become, uh, you know, really prolific here in America. Uh, but it's not necessarily, it's like sixth. you know, I, I statistics have changed a little bit. It's like sixth on the list as far as the fastest growing subculture in America. Uh, Sheiks, Buddhism, New Age is even above Islam. And that's interesting. Now, Islam is the fastest growing population minority or religious minority in America. But the impact and the and the and and the the impact on culture is coming from a variety of eastern mysticism and eastern religions. Uh Keller also says that the new Western global Christianity, demographic center of Christian gravity has already shifted. It's no longer in the West, meaning from Poland, West into the Americas. It's no longer the Western culture, the Western civilization which is at the center of Christian culture, but rather sub Sahara Africa Parts of Africa, Asia, Indonesia is now becoming more of the Christian center in the world today. And the growing cultural remoteness of the gospel, the basic concepts of the gospel, sin, guilt, accountability before God, the sacrifice of the cross, human nature, afterlife, are becoming culturally strange to people. When you talk with people outside of your Christian cloister, you find out when you mention these things. There's all kind of different concepts of them, and, and maybe no concepts whatsoever of them. And then lastly, here and again, this is just kind of setting the tone for this evening. The end of prosperity uh, with the economic meltdown here in America, uh, <clears throat> and with all kind of other things affecting our financial status. Uh, I was I was going through some towns recently in this past week as I was traveling. And we hear a little bit of the recession is is fading and we're resurging in in ways as such. Uh, But I'm looking at these towns and one particular town I went through and I'm trying to grope for which town it was. uh, But there were still so many vacant buildings, so many empty offices. I, I know which town it was. It was Lancaster, Lancaster Center City. And we see a lot of growth, economic growth in Lancaster County. I live in northern Lancaster County. But when you go into the city and different parts of the, of the, uh, of the immediate suburbs of Lancaster, you still see a tremendous amount of vacant property, vacant offices, vacant uh, strip malls and things like that. So what is this going to do to the economics of Christianity in supporting missionaries and in supporting outreach, things like that? So I just wanted to give you these, these five things as just kind of a, a, a tongue wetter for what we're going to be talking about this evening. By the way, any of you would want this PowerPoint that I'm going through here this evening, please let me know. Uh, as a matter of fact, the best way to let me know is signing up for the Antioch and back there and putting behind your name, PP. And I'll know you want the PowerPoint and I'll email it to you. Acts chapter 1. You shall be my witnesses. This is probably, in my estimation, one of the most misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. When you think of it in a missiological context, we often have taken this and bunched it with the great commissions that Christ gives in Matthew and Mark and here in Acts chapter 1-8. And we often have given a geographical connotation to it, that it's for missions To that last component of the geographical base that's given in Acts chapter 1, the uttermost parts of the world. This morning, as we looked at, does God want his church in the move through the book of Acts? We looked at Acts 1 here. We looked at Acts 7, 8, and then 11 and 13. And we saw how God does want to move his church out in the Jerusalems that we have contact with, in the Judeas, in the Samarias, and in the uttermost parts of the world. But that's not the emphasis Of this particular passage. The emphasis is on unbelief. The emphasis on the clause. You shall be my witnesses. Which begs the question. Witness to who? Unbelievers. So it's not an emphasis on geography. But rather an emphasis on unbelief. And you might say this. Having come to a conclusion of that. That no matter where unbelief exists. That's where missions is. So, again, this is kind of a foundation for what we're going to listen to in the next uh, number of slides here. That unbelief exists in America, exists prolifically in America, and is overwhelming when you start to look at the statistics and we take our blinders off and we look at our own frame of references. I left northern Lancaster County and my my development this morning, uh, Misty Meadow, isn't that a beautiful name? And uh, I love living in Misty Meadow. Not only do we have turtle doves, but we have rabbits. My wife has this rabbit out back, a wild rabbit, that she calls Harry and throws carrots out to Harry. And every time Harry's not there, I heard rabbits are nocturnal, but this, these guys come out all during the course of the day, I think, just to, to see her and get her carrots. Uh, but we have all those beautiful things there in northern Lancaster County. And yet, on a Sunday morning, this morning when I left there to come over here, and it only takes me about 30, 35 minutes to go over here, praise God for that, but it's a beautiful ride across 897. Uh, this morning when I came over here and left that development, I pray the, I pray when I walk out of my house and go to my car, I pray for my development. Why? Because I know of three Christian families in that development. That will be going to the church, going to church after I leave. There are 65 homes in that development. So you work out the percentage. 62 of those homes will not have any idea about getting up, not have any motivation to get up and go to church and worship the Lord on a Sunday. My development is unchurched. You might say, Pastor, what are you doing about it? Well, first of all, we're praying about it. Secondly... I go to a lot of people in that development. I'm in the borough council over there, so they come to me, too. And they have all kind of complaints and everything, you know, and all kind of desires and things they want done by the council there. And so they'll come to me and say, we should have a sign, you know, slow children crossing and things like that. At those particular times when they come to me, you know, I not only take their complaint or their desire to counsel, but I also open up doors of opportunity to talk with them about what I do, uh, in my ministry, and hopefully lead that into a conversation spiritually with them. Uh, so far, only a couple have been willing to listen, and we're still praying for them. And I even on the ride home today, I was thinking about when we can do another community Bible study, which we've done already in that community. But that's, my, that's my, just my development. Now, you think of your development and how many people are churched in your development. Well, when you come to Acts chapter one, verse eight here, really the focus that we want to emphasize is that we are to be witnesses. Not necessarily, we are to have geography in our mind, but rather we are to have unbelief in our mind. that if unbelief exists in our Judeas, and you can measure your Judea, it might be your home in your neighborhood, like mine in Misty Meadow, uh, or your Samaria. That might be a little bit broader. It might be your uh, workplace, your school, your high school, intermediate school, elementary school, it and then a little bit broader than that, Samaria uh, that might be beyond maybe where you go to college uh, and your uttermost parts of the world. well, of course, there that might be if you have if you have pen pals or something is there anything like pen pals anymore? Is there? okay, some people are nodding there. my. I guess there is. It's been a while since I asked that question. Ten thousand was when I grew up. Uh, you know, that might be your outermost parts of the world. But the point is that the Great Commission is for us to be witnesses, confessors, as we said this morning, witnesses and confessors of Christ to unbelievers. Now, do we have unbelievers in America? Do we have those who need our witness? We certainly do. And I want to go through a number of slides here That will that will show us some startling statistics that we should go. Oh, last week I was with my granddaughters, and uh, they were saying they were telling me about some of the animals they saw out back. They lived down in Maryland, and some of the animals they saw out back. And uh, uh, Gabriella, the oldest of the two, Isabella is the youngest. Gabriella uh, came up to me and said, "Pap, we saw an old eagle." I said, what? And she said, we saw an old eagle. I said, do you mean a bald eagle? She said, yeah, the one with the white head. It was really awesome. Yeah. And, I, and, and I said, oh, I didn't realize there were bald eagles around here. That's what we're going to look at. The, oh, things that we get astounded at, that kind of hit us and say, oh, I didn't realize that. Now, maybe you will realize some of these things, but they're still owes to us. So we want to look at these this evening. Missions is defined by unbelief, not geography. And the Great Commission is a comprehensive directory, a directive, meaning that wherever unbelief exists, if it's up in the bedroom where my unsaved spouse lives or if it's a workplace or if it's uh, if it's in my school across the desk where an unsaved A fellow student uh, sits next to me. No matter where unbelief exists, that is where missions is. William Bennett says, in many parts of America, we have become the kind of place to which civilized countries used to send missionaries. That should be missionaries up there. It was interesting uh, and and really enlightening when when Carlos Rodriguez first came here to America. Carlos came from a church in Guadalajara. A large church, a church with a staff of about six or eight pastors. Uh, Carlos came here, and he was, he, was just in, he was just thrilled with the idea that he was a missionary to America, to his various people groups in America, to the city of Reading. He, still, he and Miguel still consider themselves missionaries to the Hispanic people groups that live in the city of Reading. Tom Clegg, who also wrote the book Lost in America, which is a good book. I think it's been updated also. Some of the statistics and things in there might be out of date. Says that the unchurched in America is so extensive that if it were a nation, it would be the fifth most populated nation on the planet. The Western world is the only major segment of the world's population in which Christianity is not growing. Justice Anderson Research states that there are over 195 million non-church people in America, making America one of the top four largest unchurched nations in the world. The American church is in the midst of one of the largest mission fields in the world today. Only three other nations, China, India, and Indonesia, have more lost people. O. Oh. So here's our O number one. First of all, a decreasing church attendance. George Barna says between 60 and 70 percent of U.S. adults state they do not attend church. And I certainly believe that. I look at my own development. You can look at your development, the people that live around you as such, and they are not church attenders. They don't go to church for the most part, at least 60 or 70 percent of them. Rodney Stark says people who believe in God and they do, who pray and they do, are not secular. They are just unchurched. They've never been to church. And in many cases, their parents didn't go either. I was listening to Unshackled on the way over here tonight. I love that program. I cry whenever that program comes on. What a tremendous testimony of the gospel over the many years. I think this program was the three thousand six hundred and seventy first broadcast of unshackled on the way home over here. And the testimony tonight and the story tonight, maybe you listen to it, uh, really uh, was about an individual who, you know, knew something about the church, knew something about the things of the church, but really never went to church and really never had an idea of what the church was all about uh, here in America. That testimony is multiplied over and over. And as we go on more and more humanistic and more and more secular in our philosophies here in America, it's going to be more and more people who have had not who have not had any contact with the church of Jesus Christ or the the teachings of the church. Oh, number two, yearly, yearly, half of all churches in the U.S. will not have one person. Person through conversion growth. I thought maybe this might change. So this afternoon I spent a number of uh, minutes, maybe a half an hour, an hour, looking at different statistics on conversion growth in America among American churches. It's not changed. The statistics are pretty much the same. In the Western civilization, west of Poland, across Europe, and across the U.S. and Canada, there are 3,000 fewer Christians than 24 hours ago compared with sub-Saharan Africa, where there are 16,000 more Christians than 24 hours ago. People are not getting saved. I mean, people are getting saved in America, uh, but not to the point where it has an effect on church growth and transformational growth. Remember this morning we talked about SCAT, that acronym, and the last T meaning that when we are on the move, the church is on the move with the gospel and we're, we're, we're confessing, we're attractional through our holy living, our purity, and we, and, and we are uh, sacrificing ourselves to give ourselves up for the kingdom. People are attracted to that. And when people are attracted to that, it's the opportunity for the gospel and God saves his people many times. And when they're saved, they transform things. They change and transformation takes place. We're not seeing that in America. We're not seeing communities transform necessarily. I remember listening to a lecture by John Perkins some years ago down at Westminster Seminary. John Perkins uh, uh, during the, uh, during the, the race issues of the 1960s in Jackson, uh, Jackson Mississippi, uh, Perkins uh, created a transformational ministry in that city of Jackson, a city that was so biased, so, uh, so upset with uh, racism during that particular time that his church there in Jackson, Mississippi was committed to the gospel and taking the gospel to white and black in that city. And through a period of years, maybe ten years, Perkins, uh, his writings, Let Justice Roll Down and some of those other writings. Perkins and his church was able to, were able to see a transformation in the city of Jackson, Mississippi. His son then went out to Los Angeles in the barrios of Los Angeles uh, to reproduce that same focus of bringing the gospel for transformation in the community. In those places, we've seen something like that happen, but we don't see it too often anymore in places where the gospel is actually, through changed lives, transforming culture and transforming communities. Oh, number three, more churches are closing than opening, many in decline. Now, I have a flash here. In the past, almost three times as many churches were closing as opening each year, Lyle Shaller reported a couple of years ago. But Ed Stetzer came out with this report just this past year, though tracking the number of new churches is difficult because so many new churches are connected to and claimed by multiple partnering entities or denominations like the BFC. Leadership Network says we are planting about 4,000 new churches of the year. This is an all-time high. Everybody say praise God to that. Because America, because of what we've seen so far, needs new churches. And we should not be scared of planting and starting new churches, even if it's a a community ten miles or five miles away from our established church. Communities need new churches. And there's a whole litany of reasons that I have written up for why we need new churches, even if they're close by. And if you want to go on our website you can check that out in our BFC church planning guide. Today, of the approximately 350,000 churches in America, four out of five are either plateaued or declining. Many churches begin a plateau or show slow decline about their 15th or 18th year. 85% of churches in America are on the downside of that bell curve, of uh, the 15% that are growing, 14% are growing from transfer rather than conversion growth. You know, and I just want to mention something here, that here in America, I think, I think there's a little bit of a mask that's put on, uh, church growth in America that makes us comfortable and, and, and doesn't allow us to see the reality of the decline of the church in America. And that is the megachurch mask. When we look at the megachurch, we think, well, there's churches of 10,000, 20,000. You know, we see LCBC with satellites all over the place growing and growing and growing. And yet, even with the megachurches and their growth and their, the dynamic that's happening there, this statistic is still true, that we're in a decline, that churches are only growing and those megachurches many times only grow through transfer growth. Another O, O number four, the non-factor. It's not N-U-N, it's N-O-N-E, the non-factor. Non is not a movement, but a label for a diverse group of people who do not identify with any of the myriad of religious options in the American religious marketplace. The irreligious, the unreligious, the anti-religious, and the anti-clerical. Some believe in God, some do not. Some may participate occasionally in religious rituals. Other never will. Let's look at these non Number one, non are presently 15% of the total adult U.S. population. 22% of Americans aged 18 to 29 years self-identify as non Now, the flip side of that and the, and the positive side of that is that same age group, are the fastest age group coming to know Jesus Christ. These 18 to 29-year-olds. That's where we see conversion growth really happening. But yet on the other side, so many of them just don't want anything to do with religion. Secondly, 24% of current nons and 35% of first generation or new nons are former Catholics. I was a former Catholic. And if you have any Catholic friends, any Catholic neighbors, any Catholic co-workers, any Catholic student friends in school and so forth, normally Catholics are very open to dialogue. Remember, we talked about that word this morning. What was Jesus' ministry characterized by? Teaching, proclaiming, and what? Showing mercy. Dialoguing is that teaching element. You know, that dialogue, that dynamic, uh, we even get that word dunamis from it, or dialectos, you know, that dialogue. Uh, Catholics are very open to dialoguing about spiritual things. And I would suggest that if if you have contact with Catholics, there are a lot of helps out there. You can go on Google and just put in, you know, witnessing the Catholics, you'll come up with a number of different things. But learn about how to open the gospel up to a Catholic individual. They are very open to it. And they may dig their heels in because of the religiosity that, they, that they're involved with. But I believe now in this day and age, with everything going on in the Catholic Church, uh, we can reach Catholics with the gospel. Race is a declining factor in differentiating nuns. Latinos have tripled their proportion among nuns from 1990 to 2008, from 4% to 12%. We have a focus in church extension on planting Hispanic churches, reaching the various Hispanic people groups with the gospel. And you know about that because God has been bringing to us these Hispanic men that are helping us do that and teaching us quite a bit. Praise God for that. But this is a factor that they're facing. The, the Hispanics used to come to America and get involved with the Catholic church or with their uh, with their Pentecostal charismatic church. They're coming to America now and having to work so much to provide for their family, having to get involved in so many things. If they're not working like immigration and welfare and so forth, they have no time for church. And so there's this growing there's a 12% growth in the unchurched among Hispanics. They're not coming out to church, and it's growing, and that's quite a challenge to your Hispanic church planters. Whereas 19% of American men are nuns, only 12% of American women are nuns. Uh, so there's a lot of work there to do in men, in, uh, in men ministry. A lot of work that you men who are devoted to Jesus Christ, dedicated to Jesus Christ, uh, can do among your male peers. Whether you're going fishing with them, hunting with them, uh, bowling with them, uh, cutting grass together, whatever it may be. That male associate there is probably a non. He has nothing to do with church and nothing to do with with Christianity and nothing to do with the things of Christianity. And that's a great challenge for those of us who are men. Oh, number five. Conversion to other religions and dropouts to Christianity are escalating. In the U.S., every other religion is gaining converts while Christianity is losing them. Islam is the most serious threat to America. Islam past Judaism as the second largest religion in the U.S., The Muslim population grew by 25%. No American city is now without an Islamic teaching center. The ration of missionaries to Muslims is one to one million in America. Nobody's really, or very few, I won't say nobody, but very few mission boards emphasize missions to Muslims here in America. America. The one that I'm familiar with, the one mission board—I won't say their name—but the one mission board that I'm familiar with that focuses on uh, ministry to Islam and Hindus and things like and people groups like that, only has two that I know of, two missionaries dedicated to reaching Muslims in America. When you go over to the, our Piscataway Church in New Jersey and our Newark, uh, New Jersey Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, you come to an area near Edison around Piscataway where once a year they have an Eastern religious uh, they have an Eastern Indian festival there. A quarter of a mi- now listen to this, a quarter of a million Indians come out to that festival in it's three days of running. A quarter of a million. This statistic is staggering, one to one million. We are losing ground with our witness to Muslims. When I, when we had our offices up at Fellowship Community in Whitehall, there was a Muslim uh, mosque right behind us there. The, the years that we were there, we just moved our offices over uh, near the Board of Missions in Allentown. But the years that we were there, which was about seven or eight years, they added on to that mosque four or five times, plus planted four satellite mosques in the Allentown area. When I went to seminary in Philadelphia at Westminster, I had, a, I had a teacher, a professor by the name of Harvey Kahn. What a wonderful man. He's home with the Lord now. Lived out in Germantown Avenue, lived among uh, all different people, groups and cultures there, was dedicated to bringing the gospel. Uh, he served with the PCA in, uh, in Korea right after the war, worked with street prostitutes after the war and refugees, and then came back to teach at Westminster. And, and brother, brother uh, Khan would take his students out to the mosque in the mosque in Philadelphia. There was one, the mosque in Philadelphia, and we would go out with him to the mosque out there in the Germantown section and visit there, and you know exchange culture. Today there are 72 mosques in Philadelphia. Now that may be a lot of storefront operations as such, but that's staggering. That's staggering. They know what church growth is all about, and they know what mosque planning is. so I don't know if they call it mosque planning, but they know what mosque planning is all about, and they do it. And they have the resources also. Oh, number six, ethnic America. Well, of course, you know, there are more Jews in America than in Israel. There are more Samoans in America than Samoa. There are more people of African descent in America than in any country except Nigeria and Africa. There are more Armenians in Los Angeles than in any other city of the world. There are more Cubans in Miami than in any city of the world except Havana. Staggering. The world is here. It's on our doorstep. It's right around your home. It's right in your town. It's right in your city. Hispanic America. 42.7 million people. Making people of Hispanic origin the nation's largest ethnic or race minority, Hispanics constitu- constituted 14% of the nation's total population. That, that figure has grown; that, that percentage there has grown. This is a little bit of an old statistic, but also I want you to know that these Hispan- When we think of Hispanics, we think of Hispanic. You know, they're all the same. They all speak the same language. They all eat the same foods and everything else. Not the case. Not the case. In your church plant in Reading, La Roca de Reading, Pastor Carlos there ministers to at least six or seven, possibly more, subgroups of the Hispanic culture. There are Cubans, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Venezuelans, Colombians. That's six. I think there's a few more, too. And they all eat different variations of food. They all have dialects that are a little bit different. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Pennsylvania Dutch family. And, and my parents, when they didn't want me to know what was going on, would speak Dutch. But then when I went with my uncle to the stockyards to buy cattle, that Dutch was a little bit different. than That, that was Lancaster Dutch compared to Berks County Dutch. And it was a little bit different, you know. And that's the same way there among the Hispanic people groups. About one of every two people added to the nation's population between 2000, and I'm going to extend that, to 2010, were Hispanic. The same statistic carried over. And I had to change this statistic. This is an amazing statistic. 43% uh, is the percentage increase in the Hispanic population between 2000 and 2010, making Hispanics the fastest growing minority group. When we were doing our demographic studies in the city of Lancaster to uh, look into this third Hispanic church plant in Lancaster, it was amazing to see the growth of the Hispanic communities in the city of Lancaster. They grew over the past decade of this uh, this last census from 2000 to 2010. There was almost a 20% increase, I think a 21 point something percent increase in the growth of Hispanics in the city of Lancaster. Amazing. Reading was even more. Reading slowed down the last couple of years, but you know the city's almost a little over 70% Hispanic now. 100. Now listen, listen to this projection. 102.6 million is the projected Hispanic population of the United States come 2050. According to this projection, Hispanics will constitute 24% of the nation's total population. Oh, that is a big O. And fortunately enough, I praise God that I think it's now about 13 years ago that God introduced the BFC to Hispanic ministry. And we really have a step up. We've learned a lot. We have great men coming in like Carlos and Miguel, uh, Marcos down in Merida, uh, Freddy Chi down in Via Magna. We're working with Eduardo Venegas to come here from uh, from Mexico and help us with the Hispanic work in Lancaster, possibly. God has really brought us this wonderful group of men. And what a pleasure it is when we sit at annual conference to see this Spanish constituency there as a part of annual conference. Oh, number seven, concluding items. Six mega themes emerging that a Barna group uh, uh, put out in 2010, the Christian church is becoming less theological, less theologically literate. I don't know if you I don't know what conversations you have with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm not saying necessarily here in this church, but outside of this church, what conversations you have or or you you might even do the head scratching a little bit when you when you hear of some things that Christians are believing in. That, those statistics, I could fill up two more slides with those statistics. How many are not believing in the virgin birth anymore? How many are not believing in the blood atonement of Christ anymore? How many are rewriting the understanding of a justification by faith? Uh, those statistics are out there, too. And you kind of scratch your head when you hear these things and say, how can they be Christian without those tenets of the gospel? holding to them dearly, but the Christian church is very illiterate theologically. Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach-oriented. And that is what we've been talking about all day long. For the church to, beyond its, to go beyond its walls, and you as the church to be the church with the gospel in your frame of reference and in your context. Growing numbers of people are less interested in spiritual principles and more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. The how to's. Let's preach how to's. I sat in the church about four months ago. I don't get into many churches outside the BFC, but this was one that I was visiting when I was uh, in another town and uh, where there wasn't a BFC church went into it. It was a large church and the whole sermon Really was on how to deal with your alcoholic spouse. Now there's nothing wrong with learning how to deal with your alcoholic spouse, except when that type of teaching comes from the pulpit on a Sunday morning when people should be fed with the Word of God, and then maybe you know from the Word of God that may speak to that issue, but at least make application. Don't use it as the center of your message for that morning. Now, again, that's a little bit subjective. That's my bent and so forth. So you might disagree with me on that. But growing number of peoples are less interested in spiritual principles. And the moment you start to preach and teach those and focus on them, praise God for this church that has hold those things dear in their preaching and teaching. But the moment you start to do that out there, in maybe another setting or another church, uh, people are not attracted to that. And they end up leaving. You're not teaching me how to deal with life. Well, I think there's an argument there that we need to make our, our teaching applicable to dealing with life. But we don't center it on the how to's of dealing with life, we center it on the Word of God. Among Christians, interest in participating in community action is escalating. Um, I'm, I don't necessarily you know, think that that's all wrong. Uh, I think we should be part of our community. And when there's things that occur in our community, Christian, that are counter to our biblical values and our biblical uh, character, I think we should uh, get involved. I don't think this is a negative. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of glad for it in a way. Uh, I remember first moving into uh, Adamstown, Pennsylvania, where I live over here. And there, uh, you know, I praise God for Bog turtles. You know what bog turtles are, right? There's, a, there's little beautiful little turtles, and so they're not diamondbacks or terrapins; they're bog turtles. You know, and they're little things that hang around in marshy lands and wetlands and things like that. And we have a we have a good community of bog turtles in Adamstown. Well, when I first moved in there, uh, there was a, a fellow who owns an adult bookstore uh, down in in Shillington, just south of us, north of us, I should say, down in Shillington along the old 222 there. Uh, I guess that still is considered 222 business, uh, owns an ad, owned an adult bookstore. And he bought this piece of property across from Stoltzfus RV place there uh, on the on 272 and 222. And he bought this piece of property and he wanted to put an adult bookstore in there and an adult video store and things like that. Um, well, I caught wind of that and I mentioned it to a couple pastors in the area there. And fortunately enough, I know Rob Barton from WDAC. We went to school together, and I said, "Rob, can we do a feature of this on a Saturday afternoon?" And he did. We got us in there and talked about how, you know, uh, Northern Lancaster County may be entertaining this, this adult bookstore into its entryway in Lancaster County. And so we, we started to pray. We asked Mr. Stolpoh, he's a commission, uh, he's a Christian. If we could gather together at his place across from the piece of land there and begin to pray, well, we prayed, and I was in a town, I wasn't a borough councilman at the time, so, but the borough council got involved a little bit, and they, a couple of them scratched their heads and they said, "I think there's bog turtles down there." So of course, we got the DPA in and the animal, you know, all these groups in and so forth, and they tested for it and said, "Yes, there's bog turtles there." So he didn't allow, so we got this sanction. Where nothing could be built there. And, uh, he sold the property then to Mr. Stoltzfus, who, who can keep RVs over there and things like that. And so getting involved in community action, I think is good, <laughs> you know. I think we as Christians should penetrate the community, penetrate the community with the truth and virtue and the gospel. Sorry for that antidote, but that was interesting to fit in here. It was kind of an ad lib. The postmodern insistence on tolerance is winning over the Christian church. How many Christians, brothers and sisters, no longer cry out and hate sin? No longer are... We become desensitized to it. My goodness, this whole issue of gay marriage and things. And I hear Christians... I'm not talking about the Pope... But I hear Christians coming out and saying, well, you know, there may not be anything wrong with people of that persuasion, marrying as such. Um, we become desensitized. We don't, Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm putting together a message called, do you really hate sin? Because God hates sin. And we should be intolerant when it comes to sin, no matter what sin. And we should look for God's way. To reach people involved in sin and lead them to repentance and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, moving on and we'll close in a minute. The influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible. We talked about that a little bit this morning. We've been talking about it here. How much impact do we have in a transformational manner to see communities, schools, change and their virtues and, our, and virtues that are good come into those settings. We don't see a whole lot of it anymore. I remember Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who had the privilege of sitting under some lectures again down at Westminster, uh, coming back from Brie in Switzerland where he had his study center, and uh, him talking about, he had just written his book, Christian Manifesto, and in his book he said, where, when Roe v. Wade was passing Uh, Our Supreme Court. Where were the Christian lawyers? Where were the Christian judges running out into the street and crying, sin, sin, sin? And I guess we can ask ourselves the same questions. Um, You know, how visible are we when we hear, praise God, there are a lot of action groups out there that we should pray for and support because they try to get on the... You know, Sam Rohr recently um, went up and challenged Catherine Kane in Harrisburg with regard to her uh, decision not to prosecute uh, gay marriage participants or those who sanction gay marriage uh, licenses. Um, Thank God for those men. But for the most part, the Christian church has become too invisible when it comes to morality and issues of that nature in America. Okay. A deadly concluding question, and this is taken from Augustine. Is God truly centered at the center of the church in America? Is he truly at the center of our church, of our American church? If he was, would all these things be happening? That's a debatable question, but certainly there would be a curb to many of those things that are happening. Augustine said, You awake us to delight in your presence, speaking to God. For you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Are we restless with what's happening in America and what's happening in the American church? couple applications here. We must rethink the meaning of biblical missions and formulate a balanced global. I'll even replace that word with a new coined word, glocal. Glocal focus. Acts 1.8, missions is defined by unbelief, not geography. And we need to get off that misinterpretation of Acts 1.8 and realize that mission goes to unbelief, not to geographical areas. We must reinvest our time and training with our flock, equipping them to intentionally, intentionally engage their culture and network the gospel. Uh, I, I drive this home with your church planters. When I coach them and meet with them, one of the questions on their monthly report is what have you intentionally done to take the gospel to your target community and i want to hear some good responses you know and i suggest to them set out an hour or two if you can't do it every day but at least every other day an hour or two where you are intentionally penetrating going out of the walls of the church and penetrating the community with the gospel there that be sitting in a community coffee shop or that be going door to door or whatever that might be, but intentionalize your witness to your community. Lastly, we must have leaders who are as missional as they are pastoral, Uh, not ivory tower academics, but individuals that are leading their flocks to be the church out of the building. Out and about with Christ. We talked about this this morning. um, A doorstep mission in our city. Two required understandings. The idea of going, which we went over when we looked at Matthew chapter 9. And the idea of compassion. And then three required actions. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Lessons for a doorstep ministry. I, I don't want to get into all this. We talked about this this morning. But I'll put it up there at least for you to look at. Because this is the end. Go to unbelief, wherever it exists, I will, tell, will recite it. See the true lost condition of the unbeliever. Declutter and be intentional about engaging people with the gospel. Learn more about Jesus in order to teach and proclaim him. Have a fervent kingdom concern for mercy and justice, as well as the salvation of souls. I just want to make a comment on, on, on this here, uh, right there. Go to unbelief wherever exists. See the true lost condition of the unbeliever. Uh, one of my professors in, in seminary was a man by the name of John Gerstner. And uh, Brother Gerstner was, uh, at the time I had him, as a, he was older, in his 70s. Uh, uh, a beautiful Christian man. But he was pointed and crass. And he would often preach from Ephesians chapter 2. And he would often comment when leading into that passage where we are dead in our trespasses and sin. He would often say in his raspy voice, how dead is dead. Do you realize the condition of the unsaved in unbelief? They're like a walking corpse in the nostrils of God. A stench of the walking corpse. I forgot to put that in there. That has always challenged me. It has always made me see clearly the condition of an unsaved person. They're not like that old title of the book, I'm okay, you're okay. But rather, they are depraved. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. They are a walking corpse, a extension and nostril of God. When we see the unbelief like that, then we will be on the move to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we had together today. And first of all, this morning, looking at the church and it's imperative to be on the move. On the move, teaching, proclaiming, showing mercy, moving out of our comfort zones into the world around us. As we learn tonight, a world that is just Deteriorating morally, spiritually. Even the church, Lord, is in a deterioration sort of stage here in America. Father, help us from what we learned and saw and heard today to be more motivated, to be on the move with the gospel. The power of that gospel. It is so powerful that it can transform and it can change lives and situations, and communities. Lord, let us take these teachings seriously and see what we, I, as the church, can do in my own frame of reference and my own context. Thank you now, Lord, for the time we had together today. It's been a beautiful day. Thank you for giving us such beauty. And now take us home safely, give us good rest, and move us out tomorrow morning for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.